0: Whatever the information was, it was like, I've got something that you need. And I knew it. And so I let him show me.
1: From the Jewish Food Society, I'm Amanda Dell. And this is Schmaltzy. Today on Schmalzi, Peter Hoffman. Peter is a celebrated chef and author. His renowned restaurants Savoy, Back 40, and Back 40 West put farm-to-table cooking on the map in NYC. The New York Times named him a locavore before the word existed. Peter's new memoir, What's Good, hit stores earlier this month. We'll hear Peter's original live story, and then he'll meet me in the studio to talk about the details. Here's Peter from the stage at our most recent Schmalti Salon in Union Square.
0: So I decided to close my restaurant back forty after twenty six years in business. I was heartbroken and I hadn't told anybody about it except for my wife, Susan. The feelings of failure and disappointment came up strongest when I was interacting with my soon-to-be-out-of-work employees. But I was burnt, burnt out. But not so burnt out that I wasn't gonna do my annual calcitada grilled leek festival at the restaurant, and not only one, but I was gonna do two in the same week. The Calçotada is a traditional festival from northern Spain where you grill wintered-over leeks over a wood fire, and then you eat them with your hands, no utensils, dipping them in romesco sauce, that wonderful combination of almonds, garlic, tomatoes, chiles, olive oil, and you eat until you've you've filled your belly then you wash up and move on to grilled lamb, white beans, botifara sausage, and all the while, the wine is just flowing. <laughs> so if that wasn't enough, I also decided that week to teach a mini calzotada at De Gustavus at Macy's, the legendary cooking school, where chefs from the city and across the nation teach classes to attendees. On the walls of that cooking school hang photographs of all the finest chefs from the Big bees, Boulet, Boulou, Le Bernardin, back 40. <laughs> now of course, many of those chefs have personal cooking assistants who mease out all their ingredients, pack it up so that they can cruise in, cool as a cucumber in a clean chef coat, and just begin to teach. I don't have one of those. (laughs) I have Johnny. And at the moment, he's a hardworking, green cook and at the moment, he's on the line, deep in service. It's chaos and Disarray in the kitchen. The floor mats are torn and greasy. There's no sous chef to expedite. I'm not buying the juicer that the prep guy wants me to because I'm not investing in the restaurant any longer. And there's two lamb shoulders that need to be tied and trussed in order to be ready for the cooking class. And so I go into the back corner go to the cutting board, look at the lamb, and all of a sudden, I hear my dad saying to me, can I make a suggestion? (laughs) 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 Oh, goodness. (laughs) So my dad was a dentist, and his dad was a dentist having come over from Russia, Poland to avoid the pogroms as a young man. And he married a second-generation Jewish woman who didn't want to have anything to do with his shtetl siblings. No Yiddish was spoken in the house. My dad, their firstborn, they decided to send him to military school at age 12. The the story was always that it was to make a man out of him. That's what my dad said. But I think it was actually to make an assimilated white man out of him. And so there he was. And he, um, but he came out of there, isolated, hurt, but disciplined and driven. And so he decided to sidestep the quotas to get into medical school and follow in his dad's oral tradition, and become a des- dentist as well. <laughs> well. After graduating, World War II was just breaking out, and he enlisted in the army and cut his teeth, getting infantry men's teeth ready to be overseas, because you can't shoot straight if you got a toothache. At the end of the war, he and my mom moved out to the suburbs, along with many other uh, of that generation, and he established a very successful dental practice. A sole practitioner, a skilled craftsman, with a lot of technique and a lot of opinions. (laughs) Now how that came down to my sisters and me was that he would say to us, let me show you the right way to do that. Or, you know what you should do? Which, of course, we found completely infuriating and infantilizing and found all different kinds of ways to push back. He even went so far once to tell my sister's boyfriend how to swim the crawl (laughs) until he found out that the boyfriend was Connecticut's state freestyle champion. (laughs) So when I was 25 was the first time I decided that I was going to cook an entire meal for my mom. It was at their country house, and it was her birthday. And I had recently decided to become a professional cook, another oral tradition, one that they weren't particularly thrilled about. (laughs) My mom, an immigrant and daughter of German-Jewish rationalists, always kept a kind of a lid on fanfare around uh, emotional expression. So I wasn't particularly practiced in uh, the art of showing devotion and, and, and love to her. And I had decided on this occasion that I was going to cook an entire veal line stuffed with onions and pitted cherries and cardamom seed. And it was going to be just a grand dinner. So not only was I not practiced in showing that affection, I also was not completely sure of my culinary prowess. So the veal had a lot of work to do besides just being dinner. And it needed to be trust. Now, I'd seen plenty of veal loins in butcher cases in Paris, nicely tied with a thin layer of of lard across them so that it's self-basted in the oven. My meat wasn't behaving anything like that. Some strings, some strands of, from my tying were too tight and the meat was bulging out. Some were loose and not doing any work at all, and the stuffing was falling out all over the table. A floppy mess, it's hardly a grand expression of love. And across the table <coughs> was Jules, my dad. <laughs> who up to that point was completely quiet, but I could feel it, I could, my, my, my skin was tingling. I knew he was dying to say, can I make a suggestion? <laughs> the difference this time was that I actually needed the help. And I also realized that maybe he knew something. And so I let him in. And he came over and he said, he said to me, let me show you how we tie sutures on people's gums after we've pulled out their wisdom teeth. Okay. So there he was. He he took over the meat, and he sat there, and he tied a knot and anchored it, and then did this loop thing where then he put a twist on it that created some tension so that he could tie the knot just right and then let it go so he could move on to some other work and it it didn't come undone. And I tried to do it and I couldn't quite figure it out, but he patiently and without any judgment hung with me until I could mimic the, the action myself. And so I tied the roast until it was ready for the oven, ready for mom. I don't really remember what my mom thought of the meal. (laughs) Because as I said, she wasn't really all that big on fanfare and and, and expression of that kind. But what I do know is, is that from that meal until the very last, that I never shied away from the opportunity to cook for her the very best ingredients that I could procure, not just to show my love, but to to show this cool rationalist the beauty and and the, the, the delight that the earth had to offer. And that's what the calcitata is for me. It was a celebration of life, of earth's bounty, and... That's what I did each year when when I put on that festival. But you can't put an event like that together if you don't have discipline and skill. And so now I'm back in the kitchen at Back 40 West, needing to tie these loins to get ready for class. I kind of try to put out all the, the, the mayhem that's going on around me. And I set the first anchor knot, and I move through it tie the first loop move through that Johnny's on the line trying to make Romesco sauce in between working tickets I do another loop I think about all the cooks that had worked for me for the last 26 years that I've to- taught this technique to that now have it part of our oral tradition part of the guild tradition and so I've Complete the two loins, they're looking nice, they're aesthetically pleasing, tied up right. I jump off, pack up, grab Johnny off the line, we go to De Gustavus and, and begin to teach the class. I'm in my element. I have an audience. Johnny's in the kitchen getting ready with the first course. The lamb shoulders are roasting in the oven behind me, and I'm getting to tell all these people about. Romesco sauce and the calçotata and Spain and all this stuff, and I'm going on. And all of a sudden the teacher, the the director of the school is in the back, she's tapping her watch. Gotta move it moved along. Gotta move it along. She actually then says, Can I make a suggestion? <laughs> I, <laughs> I think you should have Johnny cook the slice the meat in the back so that you can move on to teach about dessert. And I was like No way, no way. Johnny's well meaning, but my knives are sharper, and I have decades of practice. And so I cut the lines, remove them from the meat, which is now perfectly rested, and off the slices that peel off like flowers, like petals off a flower, perfectly pink, veined with the herb and garlic schmear that I'd put in beforehand. Perfectly tied, perfectly roasted, with a little help from dad. Hi, Peter. Hey there, Amanda.
1: Thank you for joining us and sharing your story.
0: It was great to do.
1: First thing that I want to know. Do you think that your dad ever used a lesson that you taught him from the kitchen in his dental practice?
0: Mm -hmm. No, probably not. I like to think, though, that he might have used something that he learned from me in the kitchen because he was an enthusiastic cook. He was hardheaded, as I said, because he would always... He had his own dishes, his own way of doing things. But I, I hope that he took some some note of my practice and my expertise and uh, appreciated that and maybe incorporated that into his practice, cooking practice. But uh, I don't know.
1: Was there another time when Jules's dental expertise ever helped you in the kitchen or any other technique that he showed you? That you found useful?
0: Yes, in a certain way. Um, he was very disciplined about setting up space and his workstation. You know, you're a dentist. It, I mean, in the beginning, he had this tiny little room, a chair, and then, you know, there's that platter where you have your instruments. Um, he uh, shuddered if anybody called them tools. And so he needed to be organized in his whole uh, process. So having your mise en place in the right place was something that I really already understood. And the uh, activity, you know, for instance, if you're if you're going to um, clean strawberries and you're right-handed and you and on which side of the workstation, on which side of the bowl should the strawberries be, so that you're not Crossing over so that basically you pick up the strawberry, you clip it, and then you drop it, and it's done, and the uh, the clipping falls away. So he would always, like, totally keyed into that in terms of how to be a cook. So I, I learned that from him.
1: Well, dentistry was a family tradition, as we learn in your story. Mm-hmm. Your dad, his dad before him. Did you feel pressure to become a dentist?
0: No. Nope. I mean, he would have enjoyed it but he never he never really suggested it he never said you should look at that school or have you ever thought about it i think his reticence in the beginning about my becoming a cook i i understand i mean the world of chefs and food that we live in today didn't exist in 1973 when i was graduating from high school and so the the only sh- the only thing he knew about the world of the culinary world was there was kind of Julia Child and James Beard, but they weren't really chefs. They were culinary teachers and ambassadors. And then there was the guy down at the diner in in town. Or maybe there were the, the great three-star chefs beginning to populate people's uh, experience um, from France. But we didn't know people who were choosing that as an artistic form or artistic expression in this country. And mm. That was all beginning with my generation.
1: So he was receptive to this decision that you made, or what was his specific No, he career? was very
0: worried that this was going to be a passing fancy because I didn't finish. I, I don't have a BA. Um, I dropped out of school to, to cook. So he was worried that I was going to lose my way. And uh, his... Best buddy, dental friend, was shocked that my parents were even allowing me to pursue this path, and was in judgment of their acceptance or or tolerance. So that's there was discomfort around that in the beginning, but he came around. I I think there are a number of things. One is he, you know, you, you love your kids and you want to see them happy. So um, if they're happy, then you get with the program on a certain level, or we hope that's what parents do around their children. Uh, That's our goal as, I mean, that's our work as parents is to support our kids. And when I had the opportunity to go to cooking school in Europe, because I sort of got into this school with Madeline Kamen, and it was an opportunity that arose quite out of the blue, but and I was intent on doing it. And I quit my job at the Quilted Giraffe. I gave two weeks notice and I packed up and I was on my way to France. And my parents took me out for dinner and my girlfriend to Restaurant Leslie, which was this wonderful, very artisanal kind of restaurant on Cornelia Street. And at dinner, they handed me a check for the cost of the tuition for the cooking school. So they got behind it. I'll say. Yep.
1: I want to bring us back to that moment in your story where Jules offered his help to you when you were flailing, Mm -hmm. preparing the roast Mm -hmm. for your mom's birthday. Why do you think you were more receptive to taking his suggestion at that time than any other time?
0: I don't know. As I said, I had a sense. First of all, I, I was drowning. I didn't want to be drowning. And I don't I don't really remember exactly how that moment played out but he might have said I mean he might have said instead of can I make a suggestion it was let me show you how we do sutures but whatever the information was it was like I've got something that you need and I knew it and and so I let him show me
1: And do you think there was a change moving forward in your dynamic
0: No there actually were some other hard parts around me and the business and him uh, wanting to be respected in a certain way, we found our way through that one too. And there was a tremendous amount of love between us, tremendous amount of expressed physical affection right to the end, yeah.
1: Well, at Jewish Food Society, we're all about storytelling, as you Mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. We share stories on this podcast. And we share the stories behind recipes on our archive, right. family recipes from around the world. So we have a few of your family recipes on the archive, and we have Jules's chave on the archive. Mm-hmm. What I love about the recipes that you shared with us is how seasonal they are. And I, we loved learning, of course, about your family. Now we know even more about Jules and I want to know your thoughts about seasonal cooking, like when it pertains to Jewish food.
0: The first thing that comes to mind is that my my grandmother, one of the German Jewish rationalists that I mentioned in the story, um, the recipe that I contributed to Jewish Food Society was her dish called Mürbitag, which is basically a very short. Uh, buttery dough and she would put on top of it, bake into the dough, whatever the seasonal fruit was. So it wasn't like this idea that, oh, I have a lemon cake and, you know, grandma's lemon cake is so good and you can make it 12 months of the year. She was a seasonal cook and and a seasonal observer. When I went to her house for dinner or for a meal there was always a little um, arrangement on the table, a little, a little still life that she had gathered from the garden. Even in the wintertime, she would go out into the garden and pick some forsythia sticks or some euonymus and a couple of cedar leaves. And so there was a still life to look at that represented the moment in time that we were in.
1: Wow, that is so beautiful. Yeah,
0: so beautiful.
1: Last question. Are you cooking for Father's Day, which is coming up soon, or are you getting cooked for?
0: Well, the one line that I left out of my delivery was that not only was my mom sort of that cool German rationalist uh, descendant, but part of that was that she wanted nothing to do with celebrating Mother's Day. She considered it a hoax. And my dad was the same way. So we have no family tradition really around celebrating the holiday. So I don't expect to be cooked for, and I, I may be making dinner, but what I really want to do and what I will be doing on Father's Day is signing books in at Carroll Gardens Green Market on Sunday morning and hoping that I dedicate lots of them to the dads out in the world who will appreciate the book and appreciate the gift of love from their children.
1: Peter, thank you so much for sharing your story, sharing so honestly. I have my own wonderful father, Larry. Good. But I'll also be thinking about you and I'll thinking, be thinking about Jules.
0: Great. On yep. Father's
1: Day. So well, I thank you for that. Maybe you can give,
0: him the, give your dad the book, and, if he would enjoy it.
1: Larry loves books. Okay. Peter, thanks once again for joining us.
0: Yeah, thank you, Amanda. Wonderful to take this time.
1: Just a quick reminder— We want to hear from you. Drop us a note at hi at jewishfoodsociety.org and tell us who you want to tell a Schmaltzy story on the show. Or maybe you've got a great story to tell. Keep us posted. Schmaltzy is a production of Jewish Food Society, made with love in NYC. Also, we're still a little bit new around here. Be sure to follow and rate us on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you get this show. Schmulti is produced and edited by Freetime Media. Our executive producer is Nama Shafi, and our theme music is by Yuval Semmel. Until next time, I'm your host, Amanda Dell.